I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are watching and listening to the Downtown Riders Jam video podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. We're coming to you from deep inside the holiday bunker today. We're in the home stretch for Christmas. For those of you that celebrate that, clearly we do. Christmas has exploded here. Just back from New York City was our second Riders Jam excursion. Went down to see Laura Zalatos' play, The Empress of Jupiter. Took some riders out. Now we're finishing up preparations before we get out of here for the holiday break. Even though we will not be recording new shows, we have shows coming to you all the way through the new year. So don't forget, keep listening. I know you're going to be cooking and baking and wrapping stuff and avoiding your family, all kinds of reasons to listen to the podcast. We will have podcasts coming out. I am super excited for today's program. Uh, I just had a lovely, lovely conversation with a really smart uh writer Rachel Krantz whose book Open an uncensored memoir of love liberation and non-monogamy it comes out in January and normally I would wait until a little closer to put this out but it's Christmas and I feel like you should be pre-ordering books um, both for you and for other people just because it's not out yet doesn't mean that it can't be a gift and this is a really important book and a really important conversation and not just because I had it uh, because the topic is one we've had on the show with some other people. Um, Angela Chen with her book, Ace. Uh, Nita, uh, Nina Aaron, whose book, uh, Good Morning, Destroyer of Men's Souls. Melissa Palavino with Tomboy Land. Allison Wood with Being Lolita. All talk about sex, sexuality, um, uh, lifestyle, 
what makes us human, the ability to talk about these things. I just think these are really important topics. And she's such a kind, interesting, smart writer that this went on a bit longer than we normally do on this. But I think it was fascinating. I think you're going to think it's fascinating. So if you don't know Rachel, she's a journalist and one of the founding editors of Bustler. Bustler. Bustle. <laughs> she served as a senior features editor for three years. She's been featured on NPR, The Guardian, uh, Vox, Vice, a recipient of the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award, the Investigative Reporter and Editor's Radio Award, and the Edward R. Murrow Award. Oh, and a Peabody Award for her work as an investigative reporter with YR Radio, which is out in the Bay Area. Um, so this is an accomplished journalist who is mining her life to tell a really important story. And when you get to the end of this interview and she talks about all the ephemera that she had to write this, it's fucking outstanding and amazing. And I frankly was like, you'll see, like I'm a little shook when she starts talking about this because, um, it's just outstanding. So I'm excited to read the book. I'm excited for this conversation. I'm excited for you to hear it. If you are a listener of the program, now's where you jump ahead like three minutes. And if you're not, have a little business. So these video podcasts come out on Monday and Friday. And the Jam Proper, our hour-long show, that comes out every Wednesday. A couple things that we need you to do to help us spread the word. First, leave us a review. Head over to Apple uh, Podcasts if you have an iPod. If you don't, go to the Facebook page, The Writer's Jam. Click on the review button, leave us a review. You can leave us a star and written reviews in both of those places. Also, if you have people that love books in your life, people that you think might love books, or people that are just interested in these topics, tell them about our show. It's the easiest way for us to grow. It's the easiest way for us to help writers find new audiences. Head over to our website, thewritersjam.com. You can see the video podcast. You can also check out the book reviews that we have, and then you can immediately buy the book by clicking on the bookshop link. And you can support local and independent bookstores across the country. Sign up for a monthly newsletter, and you can support everybody on the Solid Listen Network by clicking on that Patreon button. And for just a buck or five bucks a month, you can get bonus episodes and commercial-free episodes, all this stuff. Malls and Nicole are building out the whole shebang. Chevy Stevens and I are plotting out a new Patreon-only show think it's going to be called the speakeasy sessions you're not going to want to miss it so get signed up for that and look i know it's the holiday season and i said earlier like you got a bunch of stuff listen to podcasts but i appreciate you stopping by the bunker to spend time with us i know it's busy i know you have lots of opportunities to listen to other stuff so we appreciate you being here i hope that you are having a good holiday season however you choose to celebrate whatever you choose to celebrate and i hope that december brings you all the light and love and laughter that you deserve. And now I hope you will sit back for about 45 minutes and enjoy my conversation with the absolutely wonderful and fascinating Rachel Kratz. I think I've always kind of been wired to understand the world this way. Like I was never someone who imagined fictional stories, but I was writing little books since I was in second grade and they were like travelogues and stories about you know, my best friend. And, and so I was always kind of writing memoir, writing nonfiction, and it kind of went from there. But I think in this case, it was strange with this book that um, I was approached by an agent uh, after someone saw, I had written a few articles in a rushed attempt to kind of digest my newly opened relationship. And the agent was like, I think 
you should write a book about this, you know, that's a blend of reporting and memoir. And I was like, yeah, it's a great idea, but I'm not ready to do that at all. Like I was still so in the midst of yeah. living it that I like the idea of sitting down to do that was incomprehensible. And I'd never written something longer than like, you know, 3000 words or something. So, yeah. So I just didn't think I would do that, but I also, the seed of course was already in my own head as I had started living it, you know, every writer dreams of writing a book. And I was like, this would make a good book someday. So when that agent approached me, I was like, I'm not ready, but the seed that had already been planted in my brain was kind of watered. And from there on, I started, um, imagining the idea of a future book as a sort of light at the end of the tunnel of the increasingly crazy adventure I was going through. And it sort of was a, a very ornate coping mechanism. Yeah. It's, I don't know if you feel this, what I've, I've described to people that I view my life as a book, right. And like, I'll go through these things and I'm like, Oh, this is a chapter. And like that, I don't know if that's sort of what you were saying is like, mm -hmm. it allows me to get through things. Cause I'm like, I know at some point I'll be able to close this and put it behind me. Right. And the truth is we're always writing the story of our lives. It's just for a lot of people, you know, it's not a conscious narration. Right. So of course there's a lot of things we can't control. Like obviously horrible Everything. tragedies happen yeah. to people. Like obviously, you know, privilege <laughs> we're born into, but so much more of it than I think people give themselves credit for or take responsibility for is within our control, like our actions and how we uh, learn from the consequences, really the, that's what we can control. So starting to view my life in that way as a story I was writing gave me like a great, I mean, in some ways it was a real mind fuck. Can I say fuck? Yeah. yeah. And in other ways it was like a wonderfully empowering experience because I saw how the decisions I was making and what I was choosing to pay attention to, like details, they revealed themselves everywhere as poetic, like things that, you know, were coincidences I would not have noticed otherwise because I was viewing it through this lens of like, my life is a story. Everything revealed its synchronicity that I think is already always there it's yeah. just we're not paying attention yeah and I saw how yes there's many things I can't control but also I can really decide like I'm gonna move the story in this direction now and I think that gave me a lot of faith in my own agency especially as a woman when you're very much socialized to believe your love life is gonna happen to you someone's gonna come along and oh, yeah. and rescue you yeah. and and you're just kind of waiting and um this helped me flip the script on that yeah, I know. So like when I was at Wired and when I was doing the journalism stuff, like and it was the sort of nascent days of blogging and like a lot of the writing that I did was is obviously first person, because when you're writing that kind of stuff like that's and I think what you're saying is that you were kind of doing the same thing, which is that I've always tried like part of the reason I became a journalist was to understand the world. The world does not make sense to me. And 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 then the the blogging and the personal writing and the things that I did outside of journalism was using me as a vehicle, not to talk about me, but as a vehicle to be like, look, this thing has happened and what the fuck? Right. Like that's is that sort of how you is that your writing life? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I consider myself an immersion journalist. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what I will continue to do, um, probably circling around 
a certain few topics as many writers do, you know, sex and relationships is always going to be a main interest, but I'm also very interested in uh, death in, in a lot of other things that are just kind of the there's meat a therapy of, session in there somewhere. Like, yeah I'm interested in psychology so yeah for sure sex and death are the two things I'll be writing about very related that's what it comes down to but yeah I mean there's a line in the book where I say you know part of the reason I was interested in exploring non-monogamy was I could sense like how uncomfortable I was going to be with jealousy and just like an sure. immediate intense discomfort. But I, I say, you know, here was an opportunity for emotional growth as extreme sport, my favorite pastime next to dancer sizing stoned. <laughs> and it's like, it's true. That's kind of always been my thing is I like journalism as an excuse to <laughs> put myself in situations that are maybe a little braver than I would be if yeah. it was just me. Well, and it, it has to be, so again, like writing my own, like my memoir is about something, you know, it's about my family, but there are these moments that I've had when I, you know, because the book is called An Uncensored Memoir, and we know, like, we know that's not true, right? We know that there are things <laughs> that did not come out, yeah. and so, like, be, just because they can't, one, sometimes just narratively it doesn't fit, sometimes you're like, yeah, that fucking part of the world you don't get, like, you're getting this character of me, and that, you know, I don't, I want to keep this for myself. How hard was that? Because the topic you're writing on doesn't like, there's not a lot of antecedent where you can be like, well, this is sort of the way people have done this, right? Like there's not a large voluminous trade set of books about this kind of thing. So you were yeah. really sort of out on a limb. Like, how was that? It's Figuring scary, out what to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> scary. I mean, liberating in a sense, because I think I am, you know, I think the phrase like emotional exhibitionism gets thrown at women who write anything sure. personal, but I do think there's a degree to which I seem to be less afraid of revealing things than your average person. And I do feel a sense of liberation among, um, by just like saying it and going yeah. there and hopefully I guess I feel motivated that hopefully that helps others feel less shame because I think like, in our world, especially when it comes to things related to sex and gender, there's so much shame. And I think that it's a very destructive emotion that causes people to hide things and then yeah. and, and feel, you know, anger and suppress all this stuff. And then that leads to other dangerous things. So I sort of feel like I felt a sense of responsibility to tell the truth and expose as much as I could and like really push myself to do that because I felt like, yeah, of course you can't reveal everything, but if I was holding anything back consciously in order to make myself look good, I feel like the reader can always feel that. Oh, yeah. And so I'm not really <laughs> interested in that. Like I'm the most flawed person in the book, I think. You know, um, yeah, you have to I be hope. right. Yeah, <laughs> if you're gonna do that. You have to be. Otherwise, it comes off like it's like a comedian that makes the you the butt of the joke. Well, the comedian yeah. looks like an asshole. Like if you're like that's, you just have to do that. And that's a hard type. I think that's a hard as a writer, a hard thing to figure out because you never know how it's going to be taken until you're. It's too late to fix it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, and and you know that it's an impossible line yeah. to walk because already when you're writing memoir, you're called 
narcissistic. And if yeah. you're a woman writing about her sex life in any way, that's not completely self-deprecating. Yeah. It's like, oh, she's doing it for the attention. Yeah. She's, you know, so I just kind of knew right away, like it's a losing game. <laughs> so like starting from that premise and trying not to let that stop me, I thought like, what, what feels true and, and what would I have appreciated reading when I was kind of at the beginning of this yeah. journey. And I felt like it was something that would have really admitted to all the low points as well as the high points. And yeah. I think non-monogamy is just people are gaining to have even basic acceptance of it as a lifestyle that like with a lot of things, there's not as much discussion of the ways it can go wrong because it's still so stigmatized. We're just trying to say this should even be a valid way yeah. of living. And look, it's not any, you know, it's not all these stereotypes, but I think the problem with that is you're not really going to have mainstream acceptance until you show that it's flawed, just like any other relationship model and is going to have a series of varied outcomes, just right. like any monogamous relationship would have every variety of outcomes from abusive to wonderful. And yeah. there's going to be everything. I mean, it's the, if there's humans involved, like my favorite George Carlin quote is I trust people. I don't trust them in groups of three. Right. As soon as as soon as somebody can square off against somebody else, doesn't matter what you're doing like that, that yeah. the pettiness of human nature is going to come out, whether yeah. you mean it or not. And I think, it, you know, I had Angela Chen on here. I don't know if you know uh, her book, Ace, about asexuality and uh, Melissa uh, Falabino, who wrote Tomboy Land, who wrote um, about uh, BSDM. Like, I've, so I've had these series of authors who are sort of beginning to explore this. And all of them have said kind of what you just said, this idea that like, look, there's this gradient of sexuality and, and that we, that exists, that's always existed. There hasn't been a lot of people talking about it. And so every time you write about this, in the, at least in our modern world, it's new, right? And so it's hard to encompass all, like your job is to encompass all of the things because there's not a thousand books that people have read. Yeah. So, like that must have, I think that has to be the, the thing that weighs most is like, yes. well, fuck, how do I tell my story? But also represent an impossibility, which is it's showing impossible. the, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think my solution was to show the reader how I'm grappling with that as the story is sure. happening and like, how worried I am because I was like before I even started writing it. What if I represent BDSM badly? Cause it's also about that community. What sure. if I represent non-monogamy badly? What if I represent, you know, yeah. like any, any of these it's things. It's an impossibility yeah. as a writer to do that. Yeah. And it's unfair to expect writers to be able to do that because you like a story is a fucking story. It's not a bullet points of everything that exists. That would be yeah. a terrible book to read. Right. Yeah. No, it's boring. And, and you see readers sometimes, I mean, writers sometimes trying to continually remind the reader of that throughout the book and it can get a little exhausting. So it's a very yeah. fine line to walk of like, I just tried to basically show myself grappling with it narratively, put that in the introduction and have, um, <laughs> let it go, <laughs> you know, bringing in other voices besides yeah. mine to show a wider array of, of other people's experiences and also to contextualize, you know, it's very much a narrative book um, that reads like memoir, but it's contextualized throughout by all these different experts and psychologists, whether in the text itself or the footnote. So you're kind of like reading me as the case study and it's 
you're reminded by all these outside voices of like, this is the greater context in which this lives. This is yeah. how this is yeah. reflective of greater trends or not, you know? So had, hopefully that helps check the reader as well. I had Nina Aaron on the show who wrote Good Morning, Destroyer of Men's Souls, which I had on only because, before I'd read the book, only because it's the greatest book title that's ever been out <laughs> ever. But it was, it's a memoir, but it's not. Like, it's really, like she said, like, I gave you the salacious details of my life. But most of the book was this sort of reporting outside of it. She's like, I was going to teach you some shit while you read this uh, and not make it, this other thing, right? And that was her, she was like, that was my way to get people in. Cause I knew, I, right, I know, I know it's gonna bring them in, but my life is not fodder for you, right? Like you're reading my book to learn what I want you to learn. Like, was there <laughs> some of that going on? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the Publishers Weekly review, I was really happy had the line, seduces and educates in equal measure. And I was sure. like, oh, that should go on my tombstone. Right. Like, <laughs> I feel like that's my, that's Sex my goal. and death, you brought it back around with that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And um, I think that also like part of the political statement of this book is that a lot of times we like to put things in these binary boxes of like either it's a respectable journalist who, you right. know, is obviously not going to be like writing about details of her sex life, or it's someone who's kind of not respectable right. or not serious um, or whatever, who's just going to write confessional erotica. Right. And this book is very much like, you're going to be hopefully getting turned on at certain moments in this book. And then the next, you're going to have to be like reading some statistics and right. like yeah. learning about the context for like why you just got turned on possibly. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I think it's another tool and it's, it's ridiculously indicative of our culture of how we try to relegate sex into some box and also particularly like female sexuality or queer sexuality that it's like this kind of not serious topic or it's not as respectable like it's not I have the line in the book of like why isn't a man climbing Everest considered award-winning in journalism but a woman plumbing her most uh, deep psychosexual depths is like confessional erotica. And that was really the question that kept pushing yeah. me is like, you know, why can't this be considered immersion journalism? I'm going so deep into this underreported underworld. I'm doing dozens and dozens of interviews. I'm recording my life. I'm, you know, doing all this research and reading, reporting this story for like five years, but I still see even with how the book is being marketed, how the book yeah. <laughs> is initially being received. Of course, like, you know, the headline becomes more salacious and that's, sure. I understand whatever gets people to the book, but I haven't, you know, this is the first interview where we're like talking serious craft or like the things behind that. Yeah. And there's this kind of thing of like, when you write personally, especially about these topics, people don't they think it's like a diary entry, but it's not. It yeah. takes it's a lot of work. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, 
During Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yeah. It's whenever I work with young writers, I always tell them, like, you know, your first draft is probably going to be a diary entry, and then we're going <laughs> to turn it into a story. Like, nobody cares about event, event, event. Like there has to be an overarching thing. And like, that was why Nina's book was so interesting and why I wanted to talk to you about this book because those kinds of things are, I mean, one, just craft rise. They're really fucking hard to do. It's hard to make yourself the center of a story and then also not the center of the story and to use the character of you in a certain way to do those things. And the other reason is we, you know, I have this discussion offline a lot because it's just a, it's a tricky topic that not a lot of people want to talk about, but um, the, uh, the, when we talk about transgender people, like we talk about the continuum of sexuality and the, and the, and the continuum of gender and the continuum of identity. And yet the world is still set up in this binary way, right? Like the actual physical world is set up in these ways. And so I think we have a really hard time talking because people are like, well, there's this bathroom or that bathroom, but you're saying like, there's this gender and sexual and we're like, yes, the world should reflect more of that than this. And it's really difficult for people to have that discussion because they're uncomfortable with it. And so like books like yours, books like Angela's, books like uh, Melissa's that begin to have those discussions about, look, man, fluidity is a real thing. Like the people that are experiencing this are not strange. They're human beings like the rest of us. And that's not even new. We're just talking about it now. Like that is what I think is really important about the topic is not getting to the answer, but being able to have a humane conversation and like understand and go, okay, shit, this is a thing I didn't know about. This is a thing maybe I was uncomfortable with, but like, that's my problem. That's not your problem. And we need to be able to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, people definitely learn to empathize, you know, all those studies through reading yeah. uh, fiction, especially. So, and I just think narratives, um, when you look at how far like the queer community has come in terms of acceptance in this country anyway, in the last 15 years, I think you can point to so many different TV shows and movies and, and a lot of them, you know, maybe started as books or screenplay, you know, they, <laughs> yeah. they start with written words. So I still do believe in the power of narrative to be kind of one of the main ways that people expand their um, 
potential circle of compassion. No, hundred percent. We talk about that on the show all the time. I, I am, I was a reading teacher. I am convinced the first place that you experience empathy is, is through reading because you have to embody some, like, even if you're two, three, you're embodying somebody else's story and that mm -hmm. character in your head. It's by definition, empathy. <laughs> right? And so that's why I like these kinds of books. And we traditionally think of that as fiction, right? And not as nonfiction. So also crafting a book that's nonfiction that allows that to happen is really, really fucking hard to do. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that's also like why it was so important to me to just be like air on the side of going there and admitting yeah. these things that like that I'm not supposed to say as a respectable, yeah, supposed you know, to, yeah. woman or, or journalist and be able to keep my career because I'm really like interested in pushing that boundary and having the reader go like, holy shit, I can't believe she just admitted that like forever on public record and she's not ashamed of it. And she doesn't care if people know that. And hopefully that helps do my teeny little part to widen the scope of like yeah. what other people can admit to in writing. And they'll all have different experiences than me. And that's the point, you know, but just that it shouldn't be this shameful, secretive thing to talk about so many of these taboo issues. Yeah, particularly since literally every, like the whole, like every parent has, is like, is trying to keep their kids from having sex. Like we, this is, sex is like the most human thing that we do, right? Like it is the thing that like everybody can relate to. And you, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, like all the things that people have done over the years. Like I know my friends, like I know the shit that they've done. And so when I see them talking in a certain way, I'm like, this is not my experience with you at all. Right. And so why are we afraid to have that conversation? Because like you've said, and I'm sure I'm sure the statistics bear out that people that have to hide those things have higher depression, suicide, like all of the things they yes. have probably a shorter lifespan for lots of yep. stressings, all the things like it's yep. fucking just unhealthy and worse relationship outcomes. Yeah. yeah, just so, so many detriments to doing it. And I think also that uh it can often lead to a lot of abuse and violence mm -hmm. because like it allows, you know, if you're kinky or if you're in a non-monogamous relationship or any of these other things and it's so taboo, then you sort of get on an isolated island sometimes with the partner and they might start telling you like, oh, this is what, uh, this is just what a non-monogamous relationship is yeah. or this is just what a dom-sub relationship is. And yeah you can get really isolated really quickly. And part of the book is about, yeah, the consequences of my not fully having that kind of community around me of um, even as someone with all these privileges and who was relatively out, how still, because it was so taboo and new to me and, and on some level still shameful. Yeah. I, I became really pretty isolated um, within this relationship. Yeah, and everything that we know about, like uh, anybody that knows anything about any kind of relationship, isolation is the, that's step one, right? Like that's step one of an abusive relationship. Yes. And so having, so having that layer of not being able to talk about it, right? Like I'm in trauma therapy, right? And the, and the first thing we always talk about is what is in your head is worse than what is in the world. And people that don't allow that to get out of your head, that will, that's what happens, right? Like that's the thing. 
Yeah. Um, and so you need to actively pay attention and push out against that. And that's got to be doubly, triply, you know, quadruply difficult for a woman. To, like, I don't know if people understand, like, it's hard, I think, for people to understand why it might be hard for you to talk. But for me, I'm like, well, yeah, no, that fucking makes absolute sense, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, the world is set up to keep you from talking. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think that I had a lot of internalized messages of, you know, thinking like after I was violated, like, you know, literally saying to myself, like, what did you expect? You know, you're, that's what I mean. You're yeah. bisexual. You're now, you know, non-monogamous, kinky, you're what it, and I would call myself like a greedy slut in my yeah. own mind. And it was like, so what did you expect to happen to you? But like, yeah. that's really messed up. And I mean, I think that a part of me knew yeah. that, um, even as I was living it. And that's why the recording my own life became this coping mechanism. And mm -hmm. as I fell further and further into this dynamic that's at the center of the book, um, where there was just a, a ton of gaslighting and emotional manipulation to the point where like, I didn't trust my own sense of reality anymore. I didn't yeah. trust my own judgment. I was told it was incorrect on a regular basis. I was remembering things wrong. So I literally started with his consent recording so much of what was happening oh, no shit. in this attempt to be like, okay, I'm going to have a solid record of what reality is because I don't understand anymore. And I think that's a lot of what the book is about too, is, um, you know, it's happening at this era of like me too. And here I am, this woman who starts out like pretty confident and intelligent and sort of thinking like, oh, I would never like fall into that kind of dynamic. Just like everyone thinks at the beginning of that situation. <laughs> yeah, it'll never happen and to me. And then you watch it like very incrementally, like yeah. yet predictably, like there's some very predictable ways that patterns, these things tend to follow. It happens over years, you know, it's not yeah. just like suddenly that you get to that point. But I have this sort of unprecedented, detailed audio record of how that happens and how the conversational dance happens and, and what gaslighting wow. actually is. And so then I have psychologists, you know, looking at the transcripts and commenting like, here, here's what's happening here. And really no breaking shit. It down. Yeah. That is fucking brilliant and fascinating. <laughs> and like, I just like, just as a writer and as a journalist, I'm like, oh my God, like that even looking back on it now, like later, must, it must be something that is super powerful to you. And also like the further you get away from it, it becomes more clinical. Like what the fuck? Like, what was this? And what was that? Like, is that? Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's a, uh, <laughs> thank you. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's been very therapeutic, also very like re-traumatizing yeah. a lot of the yeah. times. Yes. And, um, well, you're in therapy, and right? I, I think I, yes, definitely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I had to, do it for myself to just understand like what the fuck yeah. happened once I emerged, like how did I, to kind of retrace the steps of like, I know I'm a smart, strong person. How did I get to the point where I lost all faith in that, where I let someone else's judgment and mind take precedent and overcome my own. And I knew it had been very incremental, but it was like an impossible thing to explain. So then having those yeah. transcripts you know, I had way too much material. I, because he like consented, I had recorded all our couples therapy sessions, all oh my, my therapy God. sessions, you know, arguments, like 
everything. And so I just literally couldn't, I couldn't go over all of it. Like the couples therapy, for example, I was, you know, I was still only a year out of the relationship when I started working on this book and I would start like having a panic attack and being right back there. So I had to be very careful about like, you know, I had one conversation that's a chapter in the book. That's really the one that has the psychologist dissecting exactly what's going on. And that was the hardest one for me to continually revisit. And there's things that happen in the book that you might think, oh, well, like on the outside, unless you've been through it, that must've been way worse for you to write about, like remembering being physically violated in those ways. And yeah, that wasn't like great, but like the, it was the emotional and mental mind fuck and remembering like how knotted it was and how, and seeing, I guess, how his arguments like still had so much pull on me and that there was still this voice in me being like, what are you doing? Like, you're going to sell me out like this. You're going to like make this stupid narrative of like, you're some victim now. And even as I wasn't doing that, like that voice was very much in my head, but having all the psychologists looking at it and affirming like, no, this is really important to talk about what's happening here. And this is very actually like predictable and like a pattern that we see in many people. And it's, it's specific things to look out for um, was very affirming and made me feel like, okay, there's some greater purpose to this. Yeah. And also what a gift as you sort of rebuild the scaffolding of your life to be able to reconstruct the memories and have people there going, no, this thing you're building is actually right. And right. Like that had to be in therapy, right? Like we always say like writing's writing therapy's therapy. They are not the fucking same thing. But being able to go through therapy and even just have other psychologists tell you that has to be, I mean, right? It was amazing. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it it was hard because sometimes it would be like, I had to admit to myself that things had happened that I think I was trying to not admit had been traumatizing or were things I should, you know, still be affected by. because that's the thing with this kind of like emotional stuff is like, it's all in your head, right? Like it's so you kind of really, the whole thing is gaslighting is like manipulating someone by psychological means into questioning their sanity. And um, it's a word that's thrown around a little too lightly, but it's a really insidious form of emotional abuse that often is made all the more complicated by the fact that the person doing it doesn't mean to be usually manipulating you. They're usually not psychopathic. They really do love you. They really do think they just know what's best for you. And that if you could just adhere to their judgment and version of reality of things (laughs) at all times. As you're describing it, it sounds very bad. (laughs) Yeah, you would be happy, but you know, it's not necessarily in part, like it's not a conscious thing. So I show a lot of how it's this dance that the people get locked in yeah, and how kind of a simplistic narrative around like evil villain abuser and victim can sometimes keep the person on the receiving end locked in that dynamic because they're like, I'm not a victim or, you know, like I know exactly what he's doing. I see it better than he does, but you're still locked in it. So it gets very complex. Well, and and 
we'll end with this because I mean, that's the invisible forces of like patriarchy. Like that's the thing, right? Like that's what, and we talk, you know, not a tremendous about it on the show, but a fair amount, which is that, that like, it's hard, like you, it's hard to describe. I mean, you can describe the patriarchy, right? Like it's easy to say like, this is what it is structurally. This is what it is. And then people go, well, what does that look like? And you're like, well, fuck, like, it looks like this thing that if you could just see it, it'd be easy to stop. It's this other thing, right? Yeah. Like, and that, you know, I'm, I'm sure in this book, there's lots of those forces that are being like, look, this is what it looks. It's like dry drowning. It doesn't look like they're drowning, but they fucking are. And that's a real thing. And what was very important to me was to show the suffering that happened on his side, being the upholder of that system, being yeah. the, the dominant cis straight man who's supposed to know best and kind of the psychological <laughs> burden yeah. of, of, you know, playing that role and, yeah. and not being allowed to be vulnerable and kind of having internalized that you're always right. And that doesn't excuse the behavior, but it yeah. is also very important to me to show, to ask the psychologist, like, what what's going on with him that makes him want to do this you yeah. know even subconsciously what it like why would someone feel the need to control someone in that way and to show the suffering behind that because i think if we're to move forward in terms of um our relationships in a post me too world we have to empathize with all sides of these dynamics and know that's not that's not the same thing of absolving people for behavior right. that's not okay but it also means, I think, not having a narrative where it's like people are evil and beyond redemption, but rather yeah. like what is the suffering driving them and how can we help them dismantle these patterns and, yeah. and be a different way towards people they love? Yeah. I mean, again, when I work with young writers, I always tell them, explain, don't excuse. Like you have to be able to understand your bad guy. What I mean, you know, in quotes, bad guy and not just be like that person's a bad guy. Like, well, that's not a very interesting explanation of that. Right. Like those invisible forces affect people. And one of the like one of my big things is like bo like the reading gap between boys and girls is larger than the math and science gap. I think it's closed. But I, for years, I was a middle school teacher. For years, I've been yelling. I'm like, look, if we believe empathy starts in reading and we're just saying these boys can't sit down and read, what you're going to end up with is January 6th, right? You're going to have men that aren't able to deal with their internal lies, with aren't able to be okay with other people's stories being meaningful. And you will have what this testosterone-driven violent reaction because that is the nuclear bomb of manhood. Like, yes. it's like, that's it. Right. And so yes. like, I, I like hearing that. Not that I think that should be a part of everybody's book because everybody needs to tell the story they need to tell, but it is, I think important because the problem again, isn't you, the problem is us. Like we are the primary driver of that and understanding how to fix or the that. system, the system that socializes all of it us is largely created and run yes. by, yes. you know, Men. Dudes that look and sound a lot like me. <laughs> yes, totally. And that's fascinating about the reading gap. I didn't know that that's really sad. And it, it makes a lot of sense. And it's a great example of how men suffer under these systems too, incredibly. And the, you know, as much bullshit as I've experienced as a woman socializing our culture and as many boxes as it puts me into, I honestly, I would never trade it because... I'm like, I can't, as an emotional person and, and romantic and artist, 
like the the box of being told you're not supposed to be like sensitive or vulnerable with your feelings, you know, unless they're anger. It's like the most one of the most oppressive things. Yeah, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. It's awful. And so like, yeah, I think talking about the way these systems are hurting men, too, even if they're the ones behind them. Yeah. So I'm glad that was only like three minutes of this conversation, because that's about, I think, the right amount of time, like in terms of who needs to be talked about. I think that's the right structure. So the book is called Open, uh, an uncensored memoir of love, liberation and non-monogamy. It's out in January, end of January, both here and in the UK, correct? Yeah, and some other countries it's going to be coming out too. So that's exciting. Like I have it pre-ordered already. I'm very, I'm I'm really looking forward to reading it. Um, You are a fucking delight and you are charming. And uh, I really look forward to seeing what you're doing because uh, the the, the stuff that you're doing is the hard kind of work that when you can put it in writing always makes for good stories. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Well, there you have it. That was Rachel Krantz, whose book, Open, an Uncensored Memoir of Love, Liberation, and Non-Monogamy, is out this January. So you're going to do the good literary citizen does and go pre-order that book from bookshop.org. It's going to ship during the U.S. January 25th. It's a great gift to give in Christmas because then it comes twice. People get a gift under the present, under the tree, and then it shows up again in January and they remember you um, then. That is my pitch. Do that. I did already. Before we get out of here, just a couple reminders. If you like what you heard today, we ask you to do two things at the top of the show. Tell your friends about us, particularly those book lovers. Like, don't not just rando friends who aren't going to listen, like people that like books. Like, do that. Uh, and leave us a review, either on Apple Podcasts, if you have an iPod, or over at the Facebook page, The Writer's Jam, under that little reviews tab. Don't forget to check out everything else that we do on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly McAleer. December's a really good time if you haven't experienced the shows to check out everything else on the network because there's a lot of uh, holiday-themed things that are going on that are pretty funny. Uh, Don't forget the video podcast, Monday and Friday. It's going to be a little truncated over the last couple weeks of the holiday, right? Because... uh, Everybody's doing stuff, but uh, you can still catch that on the Solid Listen Network YouTube channel. You can catch it over at theridersjam.com, and you can catch the audio wherever you listen to the Downtown Writers Jam. That comes out on Wednesday. That's our hour-long program. The surest way not to miss anything that we do, get yourself subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at the Writers Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. 
and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.